This morning, I'd like you to open up to Psalm 27. I won't be doing an exposition of that, but I want us to start there. I want us to, something significant in Psalm 27, a heart of attitude that David presents there that I want us to see. Now, when you hear the word, the Trinity, that phrase, when you hear that, what thoughts come to your mind? How do you respond? Do you say, oh, gee, can you sigh with resignation and say, you know, is this going to be a dry lecture fitted for seminaries and systematic theologies that are thousands of pages long? Or do you eagerly anticipate learning something about your wonderful God? Same topic, totally different attitudes. Just this week, scientists reveal the first ever pictures of a massive black hole at the very center of the Milky Way galaxy. Massive. First ever pictures. How many of you saw it? Few. Few. I saw it and I was like, okay. Then I moved on to the next article. But then I did... Go read about it. And the more I read, the more interesting it became. And the website I was looking at had this like little infographic. Takes you from Earth and it projects you millions of light years to where this black hole is at. And I couldn't help but be overcome with awe of God who created all this. So something that was like dull and ho-hum, right? Which is interesting considering it's the first ever picture of a black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And most of us either didn't hear of it or didn't care initially anyway. That, that has actually very fascinating, not because of the black hole itself, but because of the God who created it. And his, this the massive universe that he controls. That is an is a, in a, in a imperfect illustration of what I'm hoping to, to do to you today, or that you would come away with today. I'm not comparing God to a black hole. Don't get that analogy. What I'm saying is that something that you might have approached before as something fitted for seminaries and for systematic theologies and just a doctrine over there to be something very fabulous. That, we, that you would want to dig in and to know more of. The, the Trinity may seem like a stodgy, dull doctrine. But in reality, the Trinity is a doctrine that brings us into a close encounter with a God who is so marvelous that he pulls all of us into his orbit and wants us to know more. Right? Knowledge of God rightly understood, will breed a greater thirst for the knowledge of God. Because he is so massive and incomprehensible, we will never, never know everything there is to know about him. We will always be learning something more, which elicits praise, um, our praise to him. So the main thing I want you to come away with today is I want you to to gain an an understanding of, of That God has revealed himself to be the Trinity. And you are to to yearn to know the Trinity. And you are to see that the Trinity is absolutely essential 
to your Christian life. And you may not see that yet, but, but over the coming weeks, we're, I'm going to unpack that. The, the, the Trinity is absolutely essential to your everyday life. You cannot be a Christian even today, this morning, without have relying upon the Trinity, without relying upon God as the Trinity. And so this morning is really just a call to know our triune God. Now, I had you turn to Psalm 27, and we're going to look at that together. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to read it, the whole thing. But I want you to see the psalmist's desire to know God and look, look for his request that he prays to God. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord. That I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, as, and, as, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. What we see here in Psalm 27 is the psalmist's great desire to want to know God better, to, to know him better and to be with him. We need to understand God as the Trinity. Psalm 27 is not a psalm about the Trinity. I'm not trying to make it that. What I'm saying is, you know, see the psalmist's desire to know God. You, before we can know God as Trinity, we must have a desire to want to even know God. You need to seek to understand God because that's the proper response of his creation. First of all, we, we owe it to him to seek to understand him because he's created us. Right? So that, that, that includes all people everywhere. Right? Even if you're not a Christian this morning, right? you owe it to God to, to seek Him, to know Him, because He created you. But secondly, Christians have a double duty or a, a double responsibility to, to study God and know who He is because He has saved you. He has made you His child. 
Right? Some some people would say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm saved and that's really all I'm concerned about. I'm not really concerned about the God who saved me. Really? Are we going to be, are we going to treat God that crassly that we don't want to know the God who saved us? That response is, is not right. We get a response of the right kind of response in, in Psalm 27. You notice there he begins, he says, he, with his declaration, the Lord, that's, that's the Yahweh. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. He provides that light. He provides salvation for his people. He is the strong defense for his people. And, and thus the psalmist concludes that there is no one else worthy of fear. That is no one else worthy of worship. God defeats the enemies of his people. Therefore, um, the believers can be confident of God's salvation. Believers can be confident even and not be anxious at all because God protects his people. We don't we don't need to be anxious about the future because we have this God. If you really know God, it'll drive out anxiety. The more you learn about the Trinity, the less anxious you're going to become. The more evangelistic you're going to become. The Trinity becomes something that fuels every part of our lives when we see it that way. The psalmist is, is saying he wants to know God. And, and, as, and as a result of the psalmist saying, Lord, you, you have been my salvation. You have rescued me from these dark places. Look, look how he responds. Look at verse 4. One thing. One thing I've asked of the Lord. That I shall seek. This is his primary request. And, and we see this in, in three different ways. Or, or the request stated in three different ways. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to meditate in his temple. To better know God is the one thing the psalmist desires more than anything else. It's his burning desire. David first states this request this way, three different ways. He says, uh, he says he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of his life. This emphasizes his desire to know God, to want to be with God in his house, in his temple. Where better to learn about God than in his house? His, his, the temple was the earthly place where God would meet with his people. And David would re, will reiterate that really in this, the third part when he talks about to meditate in his temple. These requests are all basically one request. David also prayed that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Which, and, and the psalmist had done that, but, he, but just a glimpse of, of God fed a greater desire for him to want to know more, to gaze upon this beauty. Now, when we talk about God being beautiful, or when the psalmist does, we need to understand we're not talking about a physical beauty. God is spirit. And, and occasionally in the Old Testament, the people of God would, would be given a, a, uh, the, the privilege of seeing the visible manifestation of God's glory. That's not God, that's His glory. 
God himself can't be seen. And the psalmist isn't, isn't just praying, Lord, give me a, a, a nice firework show with your glory. He's, he's, he's praying to, to behold the beauty of God himself. And the psalmist understood that he wanted to be in the temple with, with the Lord. Now, if you go into the temple, try to get the, understand the setting of it, you would go into the holy and then the holy of holies. What was in the holy of holies? Right? The Ark of the Covenant. And what was the Ark of the Covenant representing? The presence of God. But, but more than just that. You had the, the angels on the, the cherubim, on the lid of the Ark. Their wings touched in the center. Their faces down towards what's called the mercy seat. That's where the, the blood was was spilled. The mercy seat was the place uh, representative of, of Lord providing atonement for sins. But where did God appear? Above the mercy seat, below the angel's wings. What's there? Nothing. Nothing visible. That's where the glory of God would made manifested. It's intentional. When we think of God, we're not to have like a vision of any particular created object. Even light is a created. Though we are not to think about beauty in the physical sense. So David's not doing that. He's thinking about the characteristics of God, of who God is and how he's revealed him, how, how he's revealed himself through the pages of scripture. David wants to know God better. And he reiterates this one more time with that, that third request and to meditate in his temple. Understand that the temple is, is where the people of God of Israel, David's time, the psalmist's time, it's where they would meet with God. They didn't have a Bible of scriptures that they had at their home that they could sit and read. The temple was the meeting place of God. So he came to spend the time with God. You notice he didn't go up on the mountaintop. They had plenty of mountaintops. He, he could have gone out to the woods. They had plenty of beautiful forests. But he came to the temple. Came to the temple because that was where he could meet God and dwell upon God. And, and for us, right, where do we go to meet with God? Well, we live in a New Testament era where God is no longer located in one physical place where, he's, where he said that this is the place to worship him. We have to worship him in spirit and in truth. But he's revealed himself in the pages of scripture. Do you long to read your Bible and learn about God like David does? Allow him to encourage you. Yes, David was an imperfect man. But where he models godliness, we are duty bound to follow that. That's why that example is given in scripture. The Lord wants you to know him better. And, and, and how, did, how did God respond to this request? Did he say, David, I, I know you're, you're going to sin really badly and, and uh, terribly. And I, I'm just going to keep you at arm's bay. I'm not going to let you get too close. No, he didn't. Look, Psalm 27. You, you see in verses uh, later on, verses 7 and 8. When he says, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me and answer me. God answered. But verse 8, when you said, 
Seek my face. My heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. God doesn't have a face. We see a face now because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We don't see him, but he will see him. He has a real face. That is Jesus. But at this time, he did not. So it's it's language to try to, to represent coming before God and knowing him. And God invites the psalmist, warts and all, to seek him. To seek him. And what does he say? Lord, your face I will seek. And and that represents the desire that that every Christian should have. And and if you're struggling to say, well, that's not really described me. Well, now you know how to pray for yourself. That that you would desire to seek the face of God and to know God. The same kind of strong desire that the psalmist had. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. If you would, turn in your Bibles to to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we see a very good illustration of this all-consuming desire to know God. And that is how Mary responded to Jesus' teaching. Look at the... We'll read uh, Luke 10, beginning beginning at verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do, do you not, sorry, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, we're not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he's not saying that that not to serve and not to prepare, but the time to seek the Lord, to spend time with him, that to hear his teaching was then. There was a limited window when Jesus would be with them and be teaching them. And Mary chose the better part. So have the same kind of desire to, to know God. God has created you so that you might know him, worship him, and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Larger Catechism tells us the chief and highest end uh, purpose of, of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's correct. You, you can never glorify God if you don't know Him as He has reve- revealed Himself. Worshiping God in ignorance or in defiance of who He is it is like offering the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu. Remember the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu? They sought to worship God in their own way. And that didn't go over so well for them. Fire came down into heaven and consumed them. So acceptable worship is worship um, that the Lord receives. And, and worship based on who He has revealed Himself to be. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, God says this, Thus says Yahweh, 
Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. We're to boast, not in all these temporary earthly things, but that we know God, that he understands and knows me. That that should encourage you. Yes, God is infinite and is well beyond our capability to understand everything about him. But the Lord says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's understanding and knowing him to the extent that he has revealed himself. Ask yourself this. Do you want to know God better? Is your soul thirsting to know more of God? Do you look eagerly to the pages of Scripture to see how you can learn and know more of God? Or do you think you have enough knowledge of God and you're not really all that interested in knowing more about Him? If that's the case, there's something spiritually wrong in your life. Perhaps you focus too much on the benefits of God's grace, His salvation, which isn't truly wonderful, but that the salvation of itself is not the end. It's just the means to the end. The end and object of our faith is God himself. Perhaps our understanding of God has been too academic. You know, the Trinity. You just kind of compartmentalize that as something for pastors and theologians. Perhaps your heart is just cold towards God. You've allowed yourself to walk away because of sin or the deceitfulness of sin. You're just not interested in who God is. Whatever your situation is, whether you want to know more, whether you're, you're struggling uh, to even want to know more about God, or perhaps you're not even a believer and, and you just don't have any desire at all to know God, this morning, hear the call to repent of that kind of thinking. Right? To repent of any kind of disdain for God, to repent of any kind of disinterest in God, and understand that you can't change your heart, but you, but you can call to the God who can. And He can emplace within you a heart that longs to know Him and longs to know more about Him, that never tires to learn about Him. So why, why should we seek to understand God as He has revealed Himself? Seeking to properly and accurately know God is the proper worship, the proper response of worship that that we're called to as as His creatures and as His children who have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. So we need to desire to know God because He is God. He's created us. He saved us. But we want to move from kind of the Old Testament era to the New Testament era. What do I mean by that? Our desire to know God should be more than just a desire to know God in a general sense. But a desire to know God as Trinity because He has revealed Himself in a very specific way. So not only do you need to understand God, but you need to understand or seek to understand God as Trinity. And the reason that you need to seek 
God as, or seek to understand God as Trinity is because that's who he is. He didn't become Trinity. He has always been Trinity. God provides a foundation for understanding him as triune in the Old Testament. And in a future message, we'll look a little bit at that. But there's a foundation for the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's not fully revealed, certainly not revealed. You say, but the foundation is there for that. But God brings the revelation of himself really into much brighter light in the New Testament. In other words, it's no longer sufficient to worship as the Old Testament saints who didn't know as much about God. We are New Testament saints who have been given the, the completed canon of Scripture. And now that God's given us that, we need to search that out to know Him. And there you will see He is revealed as the Trinity. Let me bring this into focus. With the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Trinity moves out of the shadows into the light. Consider these things. Turn to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I'm again reading a verse 15. And this is speaking of Jesus, of Christ, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, that's not a statement that he was created. That's just a statement of priority, that he has priority over creation. He is is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will will come to have first place in everything. And notice verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Okay? For all the fullness of God to dwell in Him. That passage is, is profound. A profound declaration about who Jesus Christ is. But, but that's not all. Turn to, to Hebrews 1. We see another such wonderful declaration of of God revealed to us in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, you're looking at first several verses, beginning at verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the, pa- by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, he, made down, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the uh, author of Hebrews goes on to build an argument that just of, of Christ being greater than the angels. But, but notice there, that it's, it's Christ. It's Jesus Christ who the Father has focused his, his, full, his full radiance, the radiance of His glory, 
the exact representation of his nature. This is God. You know, with, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, right, the New Testament helps us to see the light of who God really is as triune. Later, we'll, we'll look uh, more into detail about why, why the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are give themselves those names. Those are significant. Right? Understand at this point that, that the, the, the Father has chosen to, to put the focus and attention on the Son. And it's the Son who reveals the Father through the power of the Spirit. And these things are brought into great clarity. We even see the, the revelation in the New Testament. We see the revelation of the Holy Spirit come into greater clarity. In John chapter 3, if you turn there. John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, he, he introduces us, or Nicodemus, we read about it here, to the, to the power of the Holy Spirit. John 3, uh, beginning at verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, that is to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay? So with that, Jesus is introducing Nicodemus to things he really should have already understood. The shadows were in the Old Testament. Jesus is bringing these truths out into uh, the light, into greater understanding for his people. We some, see something similar in, in John 15, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as another helper. Jesus is talking to his disciples about his departure. In John 15, verses 26 and 27, we read this. When the helper comes, I will, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So we, we have these teachings concerning the Father concerning the Son, concerning the Spirit, to help us understand there's something about God that, that is very unique. Right? Uh, we, could, we could say there are quite a few things, but in particular I'm pointing to the triunity of God. Right? His triunity is extremely unique. There is, there is no other. The God of the universe the God who created that black hole and the Milky Way galaxy is the true God. He's the only living God. He's the saving God. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of David. David. He's the God of, of all the apostles, the, the God of the prophets. He's the God of Christianity. That God has clearly revealed himself to be triune. When I say triune, it means one God, three persons. There is one essence of God, 
three persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, there's a, an ancient creed that was worked out or, or really chiseled and hammered out in the fires of controversy and with in the early the days of the church uh, was was growing and in, in early church history there were those who began to teach things about God about the Son about the Spirit that that just weren't quite right and so the church came together in a, in a council fashion much like they did in in Jerusalem in Acts 15 the Jerusalem Council the church came together and hammered out uh, what. What does the Bible teach concerning who God is so that they could defend the church against heretics? And one of these statements that has proved to be very orthodox and very helpful is the Athanasian Creed. Is the Athanasian Creed, which was not written by Athanasius, but bears his name because of some of his teachings. He had the influence on it. The Athanasian Creed is like a well-driven nail in providing historic, orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Let me just read a part of it to you. And the Catholic faith, and when it uses the term Catholic, it's talking about universal. It's not, saying, not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. We're, we're talking about Catholic in the universal Christian sense. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. What are they talking about? The confounding of the persons is confusion. right? So there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. Distinct persons, but one God. Not three gods. And not a God who masquerades as a Son sometimes, and the Father other times, and the Spirit at other times. That's called modalism. We're talking about a God. One God. Right? who is comprised of three persons. And each of those persons is God. It's not that each of those are a part of God. Each are are God. These things are hard for us to understand. In one sense, it's simple enough for a child to accept it and believe. And in another sense, it's so complicated that we will never completely understand. But we can understand this, that God has revealed himself as one God, and three persons. What we have difficulty with is understanding how God can be one essence and three persons. And I cannot explain that to you, nor can anybody else. And if anybody else claims to, run from them because they're deceiving you. They want to lead you astray. We just need to understand that God has revealed himself as a triune God. Even the words we use, three persons, is difficult for us. Because when you think of a person, all you know, all I know is human persons. So when you think of like three persons, you think of three distinct individuals who operate independently. And the problem with that is when you think that way, you end up with what's called tritheism, with three different gods. We're not, we're not talking about that. That's heretical, right? We're talking about one God, three persons. So we use the word person in reference to the Trinity. We have to accommodate our language a little bit to understand that we're talking about uh, the person of the Godhead and not a human person. Because if you put three human people together, even if, even if somehow you could put three souls into one body, you, you still have three individual people who aren't, they might be physically in one body, but they're not really united. 
Whereas the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are so united, Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. So understand that that there are some things we're just not going to understand, but what what we're going to accept is what's been revealed in the Scriptures. And what I want to say, too, is, is, is that there is no appropriate analogy for the Trinity. None. You probably have heard some of these. The Trinity should not be compared to an egg, having three parts, but it's still one egg. The Trinity should not be compared to three phases of H2O, you know, ice, liquid, steam, um, yet all are water. That doesn't work either. The Trinity should not be compared to a shamrock leaf, you know, one leaf, but three parts. The Trinity should not be compared to three souls sharing a human body. And I'm not making that up. That has been done. That analogy has been used. The Trinity should not be compared to a unified society of three persons. Like you have this little society that decides to work together. Three, All of those fail. They fail to represent the biblical teaching that God is one and yet three. So... Understand there's no acceptable analogies or comparisons in creation that can help you understand how God is one yet three because they all fail. All of them lead to doctrinal error. Either you believe in in tritheism, believing in three gods, or pantheism, believing in many gods. Like if you believe, if you if you look at the Trinity as as a society that's a, a, you know, three persons in a society that just happen to be working together. Well, why only three? Why couldn't there be four, five, or six? Right? The, the, the limit. So it leads to pantheism. Believing that God is, is one but only appears as the Father and Son and Spirit at times is modalism, as I talked about. That's doctrinal error. And all these errors are serious because they misconstrue the nature of who God is. And if we don't have faith in, in who God is, who God is in the in the living word, in, in who he reveals himself to be in scriptures, we don't have saving faith. Right? There are some things you can mess up in the Bible or not completely understand and still be saved. But if you're not calling on the God, the true God, then then you will not be saved. We're not talking about merely academic things. So in talking about how that God is one and yet three tells us something about the complexity and the incomprehensibility of God. Now, when you say the incomprehensibility, we're not saying, theologians don't say or don't mean that you can't understand God at all. They're just saying that God is incomprehensible. You're never going to exhaustively know God. Never going to comprehensively. Why? In part, because God hasn't revealed everything about himself. But also, God is infinite. We are finite and we will, even in heaven, when we have perfected bodies and perfected minds, we will never know everything there is to know about God because we're finite. He's infinite. But God has revealed himself to us as the triune God, one yet three, and that we can understand. We can't understand the how, but we can trust God's word that what his word tells us about him is true so you need to seek to understand the trinity because god is triune that's who he is but you also need to seek to understand the trinity because god's triunity is an essential doctrine now some people treat the trinity 
as an add-on. It's it's like, yeah, I bought into Christianity, um, but I, this whole Trinity thing is just kind of like just an, an optional thing. And and what I like to argue that it's not optional, but that kind of attitude is is kind of pervasive within the evangelical world, especially in our world today. Robert Latham, in his book, The Holy Trinity, points out that even Charles Hodge, right, a, a faithful man of God from years ago, he spends nearly 250 pages discussing the existence and the attributes of God before, at long last, turning his attention to the fact that God is triune. So 250 pages talking about God before he even mentioned anything about the tri- Trinity. Louis Burkhoff follows the same procedure. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, devotes devotes a chapter to the Trinity part of the way through the volume, but then continues as though nothing had happened. Like it makes no difference. This is the Trinity, but we'll just move on to... It's like, what difference does the Trinity make? Now, there's good things. that All those men I mentioned are not heretics. They're faithful men. There's good things to learn from those books. So so here, what, what Robert Latham is saying, he's just saying that for far too long, the Trinity has been just sidelined, a sideline doctrine. And while many of us here at Medina Bible Church are, are, would readily acknowledge the Trinity as an orthodox doctrine, yet how many of us actually give any cognizant or thinking about the Trinity on a daily basis? Now, I argued in the beginning, I will argue throughout this series, that the Trinity makes a difference to your everyday lives. Right? The fact that you know the love of God is due to the Trinity. The fact that, that you uh, are saved is due to the Trinity. The fact that you can pray to God and He hears you is due to the Trinity. None of that is possible without the Trinity. Okay? Uh, you can, you can, you can, anybody can pray to their idea of God. Right? Even the Hindus do that. They have lots of gods that they pray to. Okay? But that's meaningless. They're just praying to demons. Pray to the one true God. That's because of the Trinity. Right? The Trinity gives us access to God. Now, part of the downplaying of, of the Trinity, or the importance of the Trinity, is due um, because it, it doesn't seem very practical. Part of it, of the downplaying of the Trinity, is due as a leftover impact of the enlightenment the enlightenment kind of looked down on anything supernatural all the miracles in the script uh, and the scriptures and you know this whole concept of the trinity uh, the enlightenment really kind of mocked that and made fun of that and just said it was uh, uh, you know it was a doctrine made up by by men but part of it is is due to the fact that pastors have not done a good job clearly teaching on the trinity and the importance of the trinity so and in part, this, these messages are intended to help help correct that. The Trinity is essential. The Trinity is important. The Trinity is at the core of Christianity. It's who God has revealed Himself to be. I've mentioned this in, in um, some of our Wednesday evening settings, but I want to bring it up here. The, the fact that God is love is due to the Trinity. Because the definition of love is is sacrificial giving of yourself to another. It's not a feeling, ultimately. It's a sacrificial giving of yourself to another. So without the Trinity, God's not love in eternity. 
he can only become love once he's created the world. And then you see, you see how different this makes Christianity? Why Islam, in Islam, their God can only be love after he's created the world, which makes God dependent upon creation for who he is. God is love in eternity. He didn't become love. He is love. That requires the ability to be able to give oneself. And that speaks to the interpersonal relationships, the inter-Trinitarian relationships that existed from eternity before the creation of the world. I mentioned the impact of the Trinity makes to our salvation. God is our Savior because of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, God can't become incarnate. Without God becoming incarnate, we have no Messiah. We have no one who is perfect, who, who can come and die in our place, live a perfect life and die in our place, be buried and be raised again in newness of life that we might have faith in Him, to believe in Him. All that goes away. Why do you think the religions of the world are all about works? Like Allah, who the Muslims call on, is not the God of the Bible. But he's not the God of grace because there's not the second person of the Trinity to come die for our sins. And as I mentioned before, you if you deny the Trinity, you cannot be saved. Listen to how the the Athanasian Creed talks about this. He, therefore, that will be saved must think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. This is the Catholic, again, the universal faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. Without the Trinity, there's no salvation. You cannot deny the Trinity and still be saved. Now, what I'd like to do is, is, uh, is to give you some passages to go look at later. There's a very interesting correlation between Isaiah 6. You know, you're familiar with that. We sung the, the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. So Isaiah sees Yahweh on his throne, sees God on his throne. Compare Isaiah 6, 1 to 6 with John 12, 36 to 43. Who is it? I answer this question. Who is it that Isaiah saw? Who did he see? Well, that question is answered in John 12, 36 to 43, especially verse 41. Who Isaiah saw was none other than the Son of God before incarnation. But you can see it for yourself there. Compare Isaiah 6, 1 to 6, with John 12, particularly verse 41. And so what, you, what I want you to see is that in the New Testament, they, God reveals himself as the triune God. Now, I want to get us just a little bit further before we stop for today. Where does accurate knowledge of God come from? Let's say that you want to know God and your place now you're convinced that you need to know the triune God. Where do you know? How, how, can you, what, how can you learn about God? 
Well, they're, they're the people that, first of all, say you can't know God, the atheists and the agnostics. But just, just you know, we talked about that some with um, uh, when Anthony was here about how to talk to people like that. They actually know God exists because the law of God is written on their heart and, and all creation screams that, that God is, that he exists. So these unconverted men suppress knowledge um, and they just keep trying to push it down, but they can't. The Bible says the wicked, the wicked man says in his heart, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? But, but supposing you're not there, most men end up just making God in our own image. So whereas, whereas you have the atheist and you have the agnostics that try to say that you can't know God or, or that God doesn't even exist, you we call this group the idolaters. And, and most people just end up in this category. Or you don't flat out deny God because the conscience is bearing witness. The creation is bearing witness. And it's just too much to say there's not a God. So what do we do? We just kind of end up making God in our own image. And, and men do this through, in, through pursuing their knowledge of God through their own intellect and their own philosophy. So now man sits as a judge and judges what God should be like. Right? And this happens all around us. And unfortunately, it's even happening within the evangelical world today. Those that should be naming, uh, should be faithful and true to the word of God are not. Beloved, understand that philosophy is the use of reason in understanding such things as the nature of the real world, real world and existence, the use and limits of knowledge and the principles of moral judgment. Philosophy in and of itself is not bad. It, it, the, the use of reasoning guided by the scriptures is helpful. But in talking about the Trinity, philosophy, men's philosophy, outside of the bounds of scripture is not helpful. There are so many doctrinal errors that have crept in because of these things. And human reasoning ends up crafting God into our own image or how we think how God should be. Isn't it interesting that God created us in his image and since the fall, mankind is basically trying to create God in in his image right and that's that's what's happened with the curse and when people start imagining that god is like them there are no bounds to the defamation of god's true character i was just reading recently of a, of a second year master divinity student at duke divinity school who opened their so-called worship services by addressing god as and i quote strange one fabulous one fluid and ever becoming one this person pulled, is pulled into a, a spiritual death spiral of her own desires. She concludes that God is, and I quote, mother, father, parent, and drag queen, and trans man, and gender fluid, unquote. That's someone who's paid tens of thousands of dollars to go to a divinity school at Duke University. Right? Only that they could just follow their own heart's desire and make God into their own image. The student, heavily influenced by her desire that God affirm LGBTQ relationship, has envisioned an LGBTQ God. And we should be rightly appalled at this misrepresentation of God. And yet, how many so-called evangelicals share the inclination to, to shape God accordance to their own desires? Well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, my God wouldn't judge people. Well, my God wouldn't call homosexuality sin. And, and before you know it, you just... Evangelicals are doing this today. Well, my, my, you know, they just. How about we not use the possessive pronoun "my God" except in the sense of salvation? You know, we are God's people, right? 
He possesses us. We just need to receive his revelation. The revelation that he has given us of himself through his word. And you can find so many examples of this in his word. And, and I don't have time to turn there, but I, t- I intended to take you to, to Psalm four, uh, Isaiah 40, where God just kind of mocks us. He says, you think I'm like you? <laughs> you think that? See, the Israelites, though religious, were doing the same thing. We dare not make God into our own image. In Psalm 50, 21 uh, the psalmist says, these things, or God's saying to this through the psalmist, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and I will state the case in order before your eyes. God will bring rebuke. So where do we go to get accurate knowledge of God? You're, you're kind of there with me already. The scriptures. The scriptures are our only trustworthy guide to understanding who God is. So when we want to study the doctrine of the Trinity, not not as a, a, an add-on, but as who God is, where do we turn? Well, Louis Burkhoff answers this clearly. He says that the doctrine of the Trinity is very decidedly a doctrine of revelation. And where do we go to receive revelation from God? The Scriptures. If we're going to understand God accurately, what must depend upon the Scriptures as the only source of credible, reliable information about who God is. There's so many passages about this. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in, in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And that, that can be applied many different ways, but apply it towards knowing God. Trust the scriptures, not your ability to understand. In Psalm 36, 9, David praises Yahweh by declaring, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Right? You understand that? That's pretty significant. In your light we see light, meaning light being representative or a, or a metaphor for, for spiritual truth. We don't even know what spiritual truth is until God provides it to us. Right? He's the one that's doing that for us. Psalm 94 verses 10 to 11 tells us that Yahweh teaches man knowledge because he knows that the thoughts of man are vanity. On our own, our thoughts are worthless and are misguided regarding God. But if we turn to his word, God will teach us about himself. If you want to learn about the Trinity, you must be guided by the word of God. And, and understand, beloved, when we're talking about the Trinity, that we're talking uh, about a doctrine. If you look at the Trinity, do a word search, it doesn't appear in any, any books of the Bible, does it? No, it doesn't. So understand the word Trinity and some of the words used to, to describe the Trinity or explain the Trinity were developed later in church history to explain what people saw in Scripture. It wasn't invented. The doctrine of the Trinity came into, came into being because the Trinity exists and people were trying to explain what they saw in the pages of Scripture to defend against the heretics who were defaming God's name. Robert Latham explains it this way. He says, while the Trinity is eternal... The doctrine of the Trinity is latent in the Old Testament, implicit in the New Testament, and then formulated in the church. Michael Reeves uh, wrote a little little book uh, delighting in the Trinity. I highly recommend that you, you read it. It's not, not long. It's a short, relatively short book, delighting in the Trinity. Michael Reeves says this, while later church theologians would use philosophical terms and words not seen in the Bible, like Trinity, 
They were not trying to add to God's revelation of himself as if scripture were insufficient. They were trying to express the truth of who God is as revealed in the scriptures. And then as you're searching for the scriptures, focus your studies on Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is really the the, the person of the Godhood who brings into focus who the Trinity is as he relates to the Father, as he he talks about the Spirit. Um, Just just think about what John says. And I'll just turn there, just kind of whet your appetite. Think about what we're told about the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, Sorry, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That word explained means exposited. Jesus explains to us who God is. And we'll look, we'll look in the future what that term begotten, why that's so important. That, 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 that the second person of the Trinity is described that way, that he's begotten, not created. And we'll see that further. He's begotten, not created, which, which tells us there's something further to understand there about him. Beloved, if you want to understand the Trinity, and you must if you want to honor Him and worship, right? rely upon the Scriptures, pursue knowledge of Him by the Scriptures, and think about this. Think about the Trinity from the perspective of, say, Moses. What did Moses understand? And, and that's, you could trace that through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, seeing how, how Jesus said that Moses spoke of Him. So Moses spoke of the Trinity, yes, in shadows compared to the New Testament, but he understood and, and, it, and embraced the Trinity like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a strict monotheist, absolutely strict, a Pharisee of Pharisees, strict monotheist. Yet when he's confronted by Christ on the road to Emmaus and the Holy Spirit enlivens his heart and causes the scales to drop from his eyes, he has no problem embracing the Trinity. But he's still a monotheistic worshiper of God. That's amazing. And then we read this towards the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Christians are described as those who who love and long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Are you ready for the time of your departure? Are you ready to meet the righteous judge? Well, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, you are. Long to know more of him and long to see him and be with him. And and again, if you are in a place where that's just not where you're at, reality is you're struggling with different things and you're not sure who Christ is. Right? The, the call is for you to believe the scriptures. Believe that it is Christ who was sent to die for your sins and to be resurrected in newness of life, showing that the price for the, the penalty for, for sin had been paid completely and that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. The Father will give you eternal life and a desire to know him. And just like psalmist in the psalm, the, David prayed to, to, to know God and God said, seek my face. If you seek God's face through the pages of Scripture, He will reveal himself to you. He will make himself real. He will save your soul and delight your soul with who he is. Let's pray. Our Lord, you are so mighty and majestic. There's so much about you that we don't know. And yet there's much about you that you've revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Help us to desire to know you more and not just know in a general sense, uh, uh, to know you in a general sense, but to know you as you have revealed yourself as a triune God, as Father, Son, and Spirit. And help us to see the practical implications in our daily lives, to think of you, Lord, as Father, Son, and, and Spirit, as one God yet three persons, on a more regular basis. And the more we know, the more we learn about you, may that fuel an increasing desire to, to want to know more. May that thirst be unquenchable until the day we are with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.